This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. What do you see as problematic with the evangelical culture around quiet time with God? I think that we have elevated a practice that is certainly very formative, but maybe not formative in the way that we want it to be. Um, we, we have tried to say to people that what it means to be discipled into the scriptures is to take 10 minutes or maybe even you know 20 or 30 minutes each morning and sit down with your Bible and the Lord and, uh, and see what he has to say to you. And what I think this pushes us toward then is um, wanting to read from devotional materials, materials that have sort of packaged the Bible in a way that is accessible in these kind of increments. And I think the bigger challenge with what can be a wrong takeaway from that approach. So obviously it's great to spend time in the scriptures daily and 10 to 30 minutes is great. But if we expect that time to yield us an immediate uh, emotion or um, sense of comfort or something like that, then we are placing the Bible in, on our own terms. We're saying you, it's, it's very transactional. You should do something for me in the time that I give to you. And, you know, you know, there are many passages in the scripture that don't yield an immediate emotional dose of satisfaction to us in the first 10 to 30 minutes that we spend with them. So quiet time is not a terrible idea, but the way we're utilizing it may be of limited help if we're not careful. Yeah, I think uh, people have a very hard time hearing that you're actually saying something very careful here, that it's not that quiet time in scripture is a bad thing. In fact, we would want to encourage that, but there's a particular way of doing it. There's a particular ritual that, especially evangelicals, Protestants in the 20th century have developed that basically say you're a good Christian if you uh, do this kind of a uh, this exercise. Is that, right. is that what I'm hearing you saying? Yeah, so we don't want to poo-poo on Sorry, I shouldn't mix my metaphors here. We don't want to poo-poo. <laughs> we don't want to poo-poo uh, the spending of time with scripture. Uh, it's that repackaging, hearing the as you call the telephone game in your book, listening to what other people are saying about scripture rather than just uh, reading scripture for ourselves. Well, I also think that uh, quiet time is by definition individual time in the scriptures, which is mm. certainly valuable. But the scriptures are meant to be understood within the community of the church. And so if that time is not pointing toward other conversations, I think it can run a risk of becoming sort of a, a, a grand council of one on the interpretation of a passage. Um, and that's not always awesome. And then I think, you know, I hear from uh, most of my work has been with women and for many women, they hit a, a busy season of life where, you know, because most women are caregivers for at least one other human being, primary caregivers, and they feel this massive guilt that they're not able to do this once a day thing um, and feel that they're failing uh, in, in their discipleship efforts. Yet the reality is for many of us, what we might benefit from more, certainly at least for periods of time, would be to spend two days a week of a longer period in the scriptures uh, where you can accomplish something very different than you can in, in just spending a, a short increment uh, daily. I mean, knock yourself out and do both if you want, but if you never go through a season of life where you're taking longer portions of time 
uh, in the scriptures, then you're going to miss out on developing the muscles that you need to read entire books of the Bible in, in context. I want to come back to that in a minute. Um, I do think it's interesting that uh, I ran into this online, as I'm sure you've had this uh, as well, when I suggested that reading every day might actually bring in problematic understanding of scripture, depending on the kind of reading you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of people come after me, uh, mainly Baptist, but uh, not just, <laughs> not only Baptist, uh, who Those really came people. after uh, Well, then you will understand what I'm getting ready to say perfectly. Um, uh, and basically just said, well, what, you know, and, and I said, well, what's your biblical theology? What's your biblical view of reading the Bible every day? Where do you get this from? And they would say Psalm one. And I, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd say, really, you know, th- you think an Iron Age farmer is sitting down with his scroll of the Torah <laughs> every day, and like, you really think that that's what's? And what I what I realize is, people couldn't imagine what a good Christian life would look like apart from having direct, personal, individual access to the Scriptures, and yeah. which means that they basically couldn't imagine what a Christian life looked like for most of Christians throughout history, yeah, uh, and most Hebrews throughout history. So I think uh, what you're really talking about is you're suggesting like what is the Christian life and how do we uh, how do we approach God through His text, and then how do we treat the text in the way that we read them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hear you cutting that individualistic edge uh, there, but um, well, I guess that at the end of the day, though, don't we all have to sit? by ourselves and read scripture or is there another way that you see is there a better way than me and my bible and that's all i need i guess well i mean i think it's more than that it's certainly it's at least that but it's more than that and um and i think that you know i'm not prepared to to blow up the concept of quiet time i think that people have an earnest desire to have a spiritual discipline around reading the scriptures that is commendable and they've been told this is how you do it, and and so I do think it's a, a great privilege to live in a time where we actually do have firsthand access to the text. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, to whom much is given, much is required. So I do think that what we see is a response to that understanding of this is there's a wealth here for me, and I should be I should have some practice of approaching it regularly. Um, but you know, not all approaches to scripture are are beneficial. Um, I think that just because we've checked the box that we sat down and spent time there doesn't mean that it's accomplished something that has any sort of scope to it or any kind of sequence to the way that we think about the way we we do things. And and so um, again, the reason that people react negatively when you question some of these presuppositions is because the church has told them that this is what discipleship is. Like they. Mm-hmm. They get alarmed because they feel like they have been told something by the church, and now you're telling them it's not true. And and so I, I think the onus is on those of us who have a voice into Christian education um, to not just merely you know like deconstruct what they've been told, but give them give them these these good tools that they need. And and these are just basic reading skills, um, things that we would apply to any book are are applicable to this most precious book. Uh, but for many of us, we we were not taught great literacy skills through the education system. And so then thinking of utilizing them with the scriptures feels a little overwhelming. Um, but But it's doable. It's doable. Jen, were you always, uh, or were you raised to read 
the Bible as you read it now? Or how did you become the kind of Bible reader that you are today? I was not raised to read the Bible the way that I read it now. I studied English in college. Uh, English literature is what my degree was in. Just a just a BA, nothing too exciting. But um, I began to wonder why it was that the Bible was treated as mystical and magical. Um, and I'm, you know, not looking to diminish at all the fact that um, it's inerrant and inspired and all of those things. Um, but that the way that it would communicate truth to us was more like the way that a magic eight ball might than uh, the way that, um, that that any other kind of literature might communicate truth. And so things like authorial intent, you know, what did Paul want his reader to take from this epistle versus what do I see here or what is the spirit speaking to me individually? Um, those kind of just asking a better question going into the reading process was something that I had to learn, I would say the hard way, because I grew up in some spaces that were theologically questionable. And I knew that uh, I was hearing all kinds of different people teach the scriptures, um, and they weren't all saying the same thing. And so it became clearer and clearer to me that if I didn't have a firsthand knowledge of my sacred text, I had no way to judge whether one person's teaching was closer to the meaning in the text or further from it, um, but that the Spirit uses these wonderfully ordinary means of words on a page to communicate these deep truths to us, but he does so through human authors who are using typical literary forms that we should pay attention to. Yeah, I think um, you're... And you don't, you, you are, I'm sorry for asking this so bluntly, you don't have any formal training in biblical hermeneutics or exegesis. Is that correct? No, I don't. And I actually okay. never use either of those terms. <laughs> Thank you. I know. I hate using them as well. Um, yeah. Well, I, and I, and I meant to use them in the technical sense to say that it's not that you went to grad school and studied how to interpret scripture and read Gadamer and were like, aha, here's the way forward. Um, this, this was very organic for you. Is that right? Very organic. In fact, one of the, the strangest things that happened along the way, I was just trying to teach the Bible in my local church. And when I um, ended up writing on this uh, and publishing something on this, I actually had no idea that others were using the terms observation, interpretation, and application to talk mm. about how to approach the scriptures. And in my own little world with my head down, I had settled on the terms comprehension, interpretation, and application, uh, capturing the exact same ideas, uh, only with a little bit of nuance on the first one. Um, I do prefer to say that we should first strive to comprehend versus observe, only because observation can be a more um, subjective way of, of, of talking about looking at the text. Uh, but it, it's, it's a, just a little nuance. But I had arrived at some of the same conclusions that others who were teaching basically an inductive approach to the scriptures had been teaching for a long time, which is a huge relief, right? Because novelty is not something that, that, that our area of business rewards. You know, you want to be right. doing an old thing recently forgotten, not a new thing. Um, but yeah, it was really just a product of wanting to bring to bear what I understood to be true of all literature on this most beautiful and, and profoundly significant piece of literature. Um, 
Well, it makes me feel really good to know that I spent 12 years in graduate school. I'm basically getting to the place where you got uh, <laughs> from teaching at a local church. I swear everything you say is exactly where I've landed o- over time. And I'm like, okay, well, that actually, that's actually very comforting to me because I, you know, I often worry like, do you, do you have to get into these circles and do this kind of training in order to understand these kind of things? And then I hear you speak and I think, no, any person who is listening to the text will hear these things because you agree with me, of course. Um, I, I do. Well, and I, and I do think, you know, what you, it sounds like you're experiencing is, is the, is the need that I ran toward. And so like I, I read something earlier this week, someone said, the need is the call. And I've thought, you know, mm. people talk about calling all the time and what is your calling? And right. I, I think, gosh, my calling is something I can look back on in hindsight. I didn't see it out ahead of me as clearly as I can see it in hindsight but I ran toward a need and the need that I perceived as someone who did not have access to theological training, formal theological training, um, who wasn't likely going to just because of the number and ages of my children. And, and the fact that by the time I actually had time, I didn't have money because they were all going to college and I wasn't going to bump myself up the line for more education at that point. Um, but I wanted to be able to bridge the gap between the academy and the average learner in a mm-hmm. way that it sometimes feels that the academy is not thinking about, uh, which is not to say we don't need the academy and, and that we don't need um, these environments where people are thinking um, long and hard in, in academic ways. But if the local church does not have access to understandable uh, wisdom, you know, that comes out of these spaces, then, then the academy becomes almost self-serving without meaning to. Um, so I knew that there were a lot of women in particular who were never going to pick up books written by male theologians who were using multisyllabic words because it was intimidating to them. And mm. so I wanted to be a translator between those two spaces if I could. Um, yeah, I think... I'm sitting here thinking like, well, actually, I think the Academy did this somewhat intentionally. I, I do think there is a, a this gap between um, what scholars are working on and, and where people are at in the text. And I know that because I get a fresh batch of freshmen in every semester from across the country kind of showing me what they've learned in their local churches. Um, and there really is just a massive gap between what the text is saying and what they understand. And I... You talk about biblical literacy, which is something we we have come to talk about a lot more than we an- anticipated now um, here. I guess, uh, and, and even in, even in your chapter in this book, Women of the Word, um, you begin the chapter with, I love this, the first sentence is the best sentence here. A little heads up, this is a chapter you don't want to read. Um, and you are, you're warning them that this problem is worse than they think. I guess, what do you mean when you say biblical literacy versus, you know, someone who says, yeah, I know the Bible pretty well. You know, I, I scored well in the Bible bowl or, you know, <laughs> I was in Awana's or not, not to knock anything, but you know, like people, people come in and they tell me this, like, oh no, I know that Bible really well. And I was like, okay. And then we start walking through it and they're like, wait, what? Right. So, so what do you mean by biblical literacy? Well, I actually even avoid the term biblical literacy. I try to use the term Bible literacy because Mm. biblical literacy communicates that you know things about the Bible. Um, Bible literacy communicates that you know the Bible. And I don't mean know as in all three levels, you know, comprehension, interpretation, application. 
Um, but what I find is that the most neglected piece of those three uh, comprehension, interpretation, and application is comprehension. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we have so so much access to interpretation and application materials. So people believe that because they have had exposure to these interpretive or application-driven tools or resources, that they know the Bible itself. Um, so one of the things that I typically do when I teach on this topic to, um, to, to people other than at my home church is I just give a quick pop quiz uh, over, over comprehension of the scriptures, 20 questions uh, in a, in a fairly quick format because I want them to feel the appropriate sense of panic as they try to answer. And it, it's just very revealing. It's very hard for people to recall just the facts about what the Bible says. And, and they're kind of like, well, they get, people get defensive. You know, it's a big book. I'm like, I know it's a big book. I'm very <laughs> aware it's point. a big book. That's the point. <laughs> I love uh, how you begin your teaching by shaming people. Yeah. Publicly. Oh, yeah. Sh- I actually know, really do yeah, appreciate you that. You know, I, I read Brene Brown. I, I know that shame's <laughs> supposed to be terrible, but it really is actually a great motivator. Uh, it is. You know, and I'm, I'm being sarcastic, of course. There but, is a good form of shaming. So that's okay. Well, there's, I mean, some, there's some research coming out on this. That there are actually some appropriate <laughs> levels of shaming that need to occur for people to mature. Well, so. you know, it's 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 often the starting point. It's that whole uh, if you you know the first step to admitting uh, right. to, to healing is admitting you have a problem. And so right. I really did want women of the word to pull the fire alarm a little bit because yeah. um, the most common email that I would get was uh, after women had started doing my studies was. I have been in the church my whole life and no one has taught me to do this. And I start receiving these emails, you know, when I'm in my early thirties and from women who are 65, 70 years old. Mm -hmm. And it was heartbreaking because they've done what we've asked them to do. They've come and they've attended things that were called Bible studies and they've sat under preaching each week. And yet they don't know the scriptures and they don't know how to learn the scriptures. And so that was when I began to think, uh, I need I need more women to understand. I need the church to understand that we have made an assumption that we cannot afford. And that is that um, if we simply download information to people, that, that is, that's formative for them. It is formative, but not in the way that we would want it to be. Jen, beyond the response to your critique of quiet time style of reading, uh, have you gotten any, any other forms of pushback from people who you've who you've taught or who you've interacted with uh, about these things? I think that uh, the most common thing I hear is um, from church leaders, frankly, who will say, "Our people won't do that." Um, and so, I think that speaks volumes to why so many resources that are for sale for use in churches are, are uh, setting a very low bar for people. And, can, I, um, uh, can I ask you to clarify, when you say our people won't do that, what, what, do, you, what do they mean by that? If we call them to, uh, actual, to, to learn actual uh, tools for mining the scriptures, if mm. we say, if we, if we adhere to the principle, uh, like Howard Hendricks says, never do for your student what your student can do for themselves. If we say, we're not going to just give you information, we're going to, uh, we don't just want you to be someone who learns, we want you to be someone who learns to think, 
Um, and then we're going to, in, in order to get there, we're going to require that you partner in the work, you know, that you actually, so in other words, you don't read through, through a, a question in a curriculum, find it difficult to answer, and then find that we've placed the answer a paragraph down for you so that we can remove that dissonance for you immediately. And these are the kinds of things that people have been given and told, this is a, this is a Bible study that's going to grow you in your knowledge of scriptures, but it's so hand-holding that people never move out of the uh, initial phases of, of learning. And because it costs them very little, uh, it doesn't stick. Um, they don't ever feel the dissonance of what they don't know. And so they don't run to learn. They're not, they're not inspired to learn, which is why I use that Bible quiz so frequently. Um, but, yeah. but if you think about the environments that people sit in, typically we're not creating dissonance for them. We're just delivering content. So um, uh, people think that a good curriculum uh, is when you finish doing some work and you feel satisfied that you got a straight A on the assignment. But, but really, a, a better way to think about uh, a good curriculum is that people had trouble answering the question and had to dwell in what they didn't know for a little bit and had to fight for understanding. Um, and, then, and then we resolve that tension for them at the appropriate time. But, but, but the church has developed a shocking lack of active learning environments over the last 30 to 40 years. And we have almost entirely gone to passive learning environments where an expert stands on a platform and delivers information to an amateur who sits in the seats. And the amateur sees no way to bridge the gap between where they are and has no desire to bridge the gap between where they are and the perceived expert is standing. Um, you are like setting bait traps for me all over the place. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's research on TED Talks that show that people actually not only don't learn from TED Talks, or they don't learn anything more from a well-crafted speech, but they actually fooled themselves into believing that they have learned more <laughs> be, because it's a well-crafted speech where all the, you know, it's all easy swings, you know, you set up for people and then they feel mm -hmm. like, cause they understood how it went together and uh, that they understood the, the broader concepts at stake there. And I wonder how much of our preaching has, has, you know, been taught in that direction and moved in that direction even more so these pal palatable bite-sized pieces and everything you described is to me, I had an education specialist come into my class and she described this pain that you're talking about. And she just said, this is called learning. This is called mm -hmm. deep learning, right? And mm -hmm. deep versus uh, shallow learning. Um, okay. So uh, I think Selena wants to jump in here. We're, we're like kind of fighting over questions to ask you here, but uh, go ahead, Selena. And then I'll, I'll come back with my, my question about this deep learning. Well, I'm still, sort of forming my question in my head, but I guess, Jen, do you notice a type of, I guess I have, it's sort of two prongs. Do you notice a type of personal transformation in students of scripture as they learn to read scripture better? And um, like, how do you, and how do you foster, or have you found a way to foster curiosity in people um, to kind of look at the text with new eyes? Yeah, so this is the counterintuitive piece because um, whereas we have said, oh, our people won't do that, you know, if we ask more of them, they won't do it. The reality is, if you look at everything else they're committing to, they're committing to things where people have raised the bar, not things that have a low bar. They're doing whole 30, they're running marathons, they will commit uh, all kinds of time and money uh, to things like their child's sports travel team. You know, they want someone to raise the bar for them. It communicates a value about what we're doing. 
And so what I have found is that when I have asked more of my students, um, when I have said to them, um, I, I'm, I'm good with you bringing your emotions to Bible study, but I want you to bring your mind because we need to love God with all of our minds. We need to be good thinkers about our faith, uh, that they, they, they run toward that. Um, not everyone does. You know, at first there are the people who say, oh, I don't have time for that. Um, but discipline is not dead. It just follows the most compelling message. So I think it's our job to compel people to want to be disciplined about this, but then show them good ways to be disciplined about it. And I find that once we start to give people basic literary skills regarding the scriptures, that they can't go back to what they were doing before. Or if they do go back, they begin to be better at discerning between um, study that is foundational and study that is meant to be layered on top of foundational understanding of the scriptures. So, you know, you give someone an understanding of the story of scripture or, or you know, of uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's a tool they can use anywhere they're in the scriptures. Um, you show them how to mark a repeated phrase. That's a tool that they're going to be able to use anywhere in the scriptures. So rather than... Um, then just give them little snapshots or spot knowledge of the scripture. Uh, you start to give them ways to tie the whole thing together that they are going to grow in their aptitude over time. And, and they, they love it because you know, you're, you're teaching them to fish instead of giving them a fish. Yeah. I think um, you highlighted uh, in, in your book, women of the word, which I want to come back to the title of that book uh, in a little bit, but um, <laughs> the, the Xanax approach, which is where I finally learned how the word Xanax is spelled. Um, <laughs> the the idea that uh, people are basically, and I, I was talking to Selena before we got on here, that actually when I became a Christian as a young man, I, I, I think I went out and bought a book that just said like, you know, it had a table of contents that's, you know, anxiety, mm-hmm. sadness, whatever. Here's And it didn't even tell you what the scriptures were. It actually had them written in there for you, you know, one or two sentences from each passage to read. And I remember doing that when I was depressed or something and just feeling so unsatisfied. Like what, what is this supposed to do? I'm not, I'm unclear on what that was supposed to, uh, to do. Um, and so that Xanax approach, I, if I hear you correctly in the book, you're, you're saying people have problems. They go there looking for a quick answer to the problem or some soothing, uh, counsel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this week, if I can just give you a dilemma, I'm just I'm just going to throw this at you uh, cold. This week, our scripture reading for our campus is First um, Samuel 27 through 31, which is uh, where David is. I don't know how to say it politely. It's just being a total turd. Uh, he's being a maniacal um, murderer, going around villages, stealing all their stuff, and then murdering the women and men there so that they won't tell on him. Basically, while he's mm-hmm. living in Gath as an enemy of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his own village gets raided yeah. and, uh, and then they know, yeah, exactly. And then they note and not a person was murdered, right? Like nobody mm-hmm. touches him. And so, yeah, I, I think, and I was given the assignment of writing our little, um, encouraging note on these passages for our <laughs> student body, which I was like, what do you even say? But I think about if the, if the Xanax approach, like, how do you, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking for very practical advice. Like, how do you, if you have a group of, we'll just say women in front of you, um, and they're looking at these passages, how do you get them to the point where they feel like there's something in it uh, for them? Because they're going to read for a few chapters and be really depressed. 
Well, are you going through the entire book of Samuel? Yes, we are. So this is towards the, yeah. So we're seeing the arc here. Yeah. Well, then that's really what you need, right? Because your job is not to give them a neat, neatly packaged takeaway. That's what I love about doing entire books of the Bible is it forces us uh, away from the Hollywood ending. Uh, it doesn't allow for that. It does, And it doesn't sanitize the story either. And so, um, you know, the takeaway, I think, from a story like that, assuming that you're teaching it within the context of the whole book is we have to grapple with with David, who is described as a man after God's own heart, which I would I would argue, uh, as, as Woodhouse says, is more properly understood to be the man of God's choosing, um, whereas mm. Saul is the man of the people's choosing. David is, by contrast, the man of God's choosing. So then why does the man of God's choosing behave uh, in these murderous ways? Uh, right. and because he's not the Christ. You know, he's, he, he is a type of a Christ, but he is not the Christ. And so when we read the story of David and his failures, it should cause us to, be, uh, to feel deep gratitude that the, that, that the true and better David comes. That's a pretty pat way of reading it, um, and especially when you'll reach the end of your section of the text and, and, and they don't have plot resolution yet. But the other right. thing you can do is press them to feel the discomfort of it. And ask, what is it in you that makes you want to resolve that as quickly as you do? Um, you know, and what and how is how is that desire to resolve that tension um, in, in the space that a sitcom would resolve it, or a movie would resolve it, or a Netflix binge would resolve it? Um, how is that forming you as a person? Uh, and, and how much you push against that? Um, because because by definition, the children of God are people of delayed gratification. There are all kinds of applications you can give to people, but they may not leave them with a warm, fuzzy feeling at the end of their time. Right. Like, don't go into a convenience store, steal everything, and kill everybody there so they won't tell on you. That was <laughs> right. the application point. I, I right. From it. Yeah. Right. Which I felt was a pretty low bar for ethical behavior of God's yeah. blood. <laughs> it's the only thing I could. I squeezed that rock as hard as I could for all the blood I could <laughs> So let's come back to the title of this book. Uh, I think it's your most popular book, The Women of the Word. I'm sorry mm-hmm. if it's not your most popular, but it looks pretty popular. Um, yeah. And um, I th- I have a men's group uh, on campus here, and I thought, if I could just rip off the, the book cover yeah. and the title out of it, uh, I could just hand this to these guys, and uh, it would be equally edifying uh, for them. And they would learn all the things that I would want them to learn and think about all the things I would want them to think about. So can you, can you explain slash justify your existence for us as to why, <laughs> why, um, how, how should we think? I mean, I really am conflicted. Like, how should we think about, I know God has called you to this particular need. And so you, mm-hmm. um, you are working in that area, but, um, I also think, well, everybody should be, uh, hearing what you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. and because it's the common sense of God's people to us. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly agree with you that everyone needs this. Um, and I think that your question is probably one that's better posed at the publishing industry than at the author. Uh, mm. But I would say that it is a privilege in my estimation to, to have women as my audience. They are often a neglected audience in the church. It doesn't appear that way. 
but they are often not taken seriously as learners. And so I consider it a privilege that I have been granted a voice with them and that, uh, and that I'm able to, um, to do good work there. And it really, truthfully, if my voice had never been expanded beyond just female environments, I would have lived a full and happy life and, and, you know, stood before the Lord with a clear conscience. I'm thrilled that, um, that, that men have found the book useful and have quite literally ripped the cover off or put tape over the, the woe in women. Hmm. Um, uh, hmm. Because certainly Bible literacy is no respecter of genders, but I do think that we have seen a more pronounced problem in, in female environments. And here's why uh, female environments are often treated with disregard by male leaders in the church. And so what happens in an all female Bible study may have received virtually no oversight from anyone with formal theological training before it's been introduced into that environment. And, uh, and so I, I do feel like we had a lot of ground to make up with women and I was happy to address that audience. Um, Hmm. I, uh, I, I think that if the book had been written to both men and women, neither men nor women might have picked it up. Women gravitate toward resources that That's are fair. geared toward them, and men don't read books by women. So, uh, so it, I think that it happened in just the right way, and I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Um, but certainly the content is, is something that's accessible to both men and women, assuming that men are willing to Google the term rumba tights so that they will understand one of my opening illustrations. Well, I do think, you know, I was a pastor for eight years and then, you know, I've been in academia for the last 12 or so full time, but it's, uh, and this is just anecdotal evidence, but it's women over the years who keep emailing me with these deep exegetical, you know, trying to hash out something in scripture and they've read multiple books uh, by biblical scholars. I, I don't think I have a single man that has done that with me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I often wonder, like, is there this secret crowd of these really Bible literate, I'm going to start using that term now, <clears throat> these Bible literate people out there who are shaping the church in, in ways that we're, we're not seeing uh, or we're not noticing as much. Um, if, it's a, if it's a secret cadre that's been developed here or has always been there. I also look at when I first became a Christian, it was the old ladies in the church who taught me, who really helped me sharpen my theology according to scripture, I should mm-hmm. say. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, we should want women to be well-educated in theological terms because just of the enormous amount of influence they have, certainly in, in the home, typically. Right. Um, but obviously, all of us have influence in every sphere that we're placed. Uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be content to have half the church being resourced with... Uh, uh, in the pink ghetto, so to speak. Um, so, uh, or, you know, uh, or, you know, in the estrogen pond, we, we oh, should gosh. have access to, <laughs> we should have access to meaningful, well thought out, well written resources. And we should be able to see other women who have gone before us and done good work in these areas. And, um, academia has not always been the most accessible place I should say um, theological education has not always been the most accessible place for women because there's such a deep-seated fear that uh, women will storm pulpits if they are, are well-versed. And so um, that's unfortunate. 
that's unfortunate. The concept of a woman who wants to be a good sound learner and, and teach in ways that are completely appropriate to the theological convictions of her church is one that's hard for many to absorb. Uh, and so um, because of slippery slope arguments, women have often been withheld from these spaces uh, or, or only invited in in limited uh, degrees. And so, um, so that's why I consider it uh, quite a privilege to have a voice with women and to hopefully model exactly that kind of uh, leadership in the church. So I don't know what well, to tell you. <laughs> Jen Wilkin, thank you very much for your guidance and your teaching uh, and your wisdom for all of us. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 